Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm sitting here with Kirk Nurmi, TV personality, author. You were involved in the Jody Arias case, and I'm excited to learn more about that case, learn about true crime, um, and also learn about your personal development. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's cool. It looks like we're going to cover like a wide variety of topics. Um, so before we dive in, can I say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, most people know me, as you mentioned, from the Jody Arias case that began in 2013. I was a public defender in Maricopa County working for the death penalty, which means I only handled death penalty cases at that point in my career. And uh, I was a personal opponent of the death penalty and just felt like that that was a uh, direction my career was I left law school in 2000 after I graduated from the University of Wyoming. Uh, with the idea of being a public defender because I felt like people needed uh, representation, good representation, regardless of whether they could afford it or not. So uh, I was in that office for years, and uh, in 2009, I was assigned Jody Arias' case that finally went to trial in 2015, or 2013, rather. It, was, it, it didn't end until 2015. So uh, it was a long ordeal, one I didn't want to be a part of because I left my job at the public defender's office. But um, for those who aren't familiar, maybe if your audience, you know, it really, you know, we can call it a true crime case. But at that point in time, it really became a a worldwide phenomenon. I say that um, in 2013, I was unwillingly cast in the hottest reality show of that year uh, because so many people across the globe were captivated by the case and it put me uh, a rather a recluse individual or at least uh, an anonymous individual into the public spotlight. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about the case and the details, walk us through the story of what happened? Sure. Uh, Miss Arias and the man she ended up killing, Travis Alexander, were in a relationship. Uh, they began dating, was kind of on and on, on again, off again. Probably the best word you could use to describe the relationship, obviously how it ended was toxic um ultimately uh their relationship ended when she stabbed him about 27 times uh yeah it was a very brutal killing a brutal crime scene um and so she had no prior criminal record i think one of the reasons it caught people's attention was because um she was not a career criminal if you will but otherwise someone who was normal in society uh kind of like we see with some of the other Cases like Caitlin Armstrong, the slut triangle, the woman who fled to Costa Rica, things like that. We see kind of takes a different crime takes a different realm, I think, when or a different perception in our world when it's people that might have been sitting next to us at a restaurant committing crimes as opposed to, to people we don't we don't know or connect with, if you will. So um, yeah, she uh, killed her boyfriend, uh, went to trial, and claimed it was. Yeah, so I'm gonna dive right into it. I'm curious if you want to sure. follow me here. Is 
What do you think the psychology of someone like that is? Like, was this a crime of passion? Was this undiagnosed mental illness? Was this like, I don't know, wrong place, wrong time? Well, I can't get into some of the particulars of what I think about her mental health. Some things certainly came out. There were some diagnoses that came out in trial. Um, and I think it's always a combination of all of the above, right? Because we just don't, um, you know, something doesn't arise out of nothing. Right. So, you know, and as particularly a crime like this, you know, we see this with, um, there was recently in the headlines, there was Courtney Taylor, was an OnlyFans model who stabbed her, her boyfriend, right? So something doesn't arrive out of nothing. But um, so it's a confluence of everything all, all the time. So what was it like for you going through this? You said that you're, you know, kind of a reclusive person and all of a sudden, boom, right? The spotlight of attention is on you. What was your side of it like? Well, you know, that was one of the first lessons I think I gained out of this whole experience. I think I gained a lot. Obviously, at the time, I was focused on the trial and not the personal development that would flow from it. But one of the things I say when I'm asked about that, Mark, is that um, sometimes the things you don't think you're going to lose are the things you're going to lose. You never think you're going to lose your anonymity. And I lost mine. You don't value those things, right, as much as you do things that you think you might lose and I lost my anonymity and it never occurred to me that I would do that and at the time um, I was a much heavier guy than I am now I had a shaved head Um, I was pretty recognizable in public and for those who didn't follow I mean this really was a worldwide sensation I would turn on the news in the morning there I was I could turn on the news in the evening there I was it was on the radio when I was driving uh, to and from uh it was always there. So even going out in public, I was getting death threats. Um, I started opening my mail with uh, rubber gloves because I got white powder in the mail. Different things like that that really um, were certainly a shock to my system. It certainly created a, an atmosphere of hypervigilance during that, that trial and really two and a half years of that trial. And to some extent, still today. I, I have to imagine, right? Like being in a place where you're really under threat from anywhere. You know, I don't know if it's a it's not a one to one comparison, but I think of like guerrilla warfare or something, right? Where you don't know where the next threat could be coming from. It could be the mail. It could be when you're walking down the street. It could be when you're shopping, when you're getting gas. No matter what, there's there's kind of that that target. Yeah, it is that constant state of hypervigilance because you don't know when people approach you. You don't know what their angle is going to be, what they're going to have to say. You know, car doors slamming outside your house take on a whole new tone. Mm-hmm having extra patrols outside your house, having, you know, uh, escorts through the courthouse, that sort of thing. It all just, it really does bring, like I say, I think hypervigilance is, is the best word. Yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And you said it still is with you today. What's it like now? Is there well, some mean, lingering experience? I think it's one of those things that no matter what I do, um, you know, I always say I could cure cancer. I have a one man show and I talk about that. So I say I could cure cancer, uh, you know, uh, world hunger, uh, all diseases, whatever you want to talk about it. And if I, when I die, it wouldn't be Kirk Fermi did these things. It would be the former lawyer for the areas. That's always going to be connected to who I am, no matter what I do. And when I go out and act, do different things, it's Julie Arias' former lawyer. It's always connected to you. Yeah, yeah. It's like kind of a, a huge part of your identity. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a sense of that going into it? No, not at all. I mean, 
you know, it was, I, I, I had a small sense that it was obviously going to be uh, in the news, what have you. But, you know, I remember parking for the first day, opening statement back on January 2nd, 2013, and walking to the courthouse and seeing uh, these portable studios lining the street and with satellite dishes, looking like it could be beam a signal to Mars. And that's really when I got the first indication of how much the media was invested in this. I mean, I'd been contacted by the media, looking to wine and dine me, curry favor, you know, that sort of thing. But you don't really get a sense of it till you see that investment they made. And then, of course, as time went on, it got more and more attention to the point where people were camping out overnight to see the uh, trial, get a spot in there. People were coming from out other parts of the country, other parts of the world, in fact, just in hopes of seeing. It kind of came, you know, one one comparison I can make, at least in terms of the hope of it would be the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. It really got yeah. to that, that point. You know, you saw people camping out for that trial trying to get in. And while it didn't have that Hollywood goods and glam, it certainly did for whatever reason capture the attention of, of America and the world. Yeah, for sure. So okay. So you go through this experience, right? You're all of a sudden thrust into the spotlight. You're hyper vigilant. It sounds like you're a target for some people, right? Getting death threats and all this stuff. And then I imagine at some point it, it ends, right? I mean, like there's the verdict. What's the next day look like for you? Like, what does the come down from something like that look like? Well, you know, it's funny too, because we talk about the come down, you know, it, it started in 2013 and there was an anticipation, like sometimes, you know, when you go through stuff that you don't want to go through, you're looking for that light at the end of the tunnel, right? Mm -hmm. And back in the spring, late summer of 2013, it was the conclusion of that trial. But the jury hung to sentencing, so I was running towards a light that got shut off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and because of some of the threats that other witnesses and experts had received, they didn't want to proceed forward with the next trial, and the state was still going to seek the death penalty. They had a second right of the applicant. So that release from that trial didn't happen until 2015. So it was, it was a weird kind of experience in April of 2015. I'm finally... Free. I mean, I I flew, filed my first motion to withdraw from that case in 2009. Wow. Okay. So you were trying to get out. No, I, I, I want to stand corrected. I was assigned the case in 2009. I filed my first motion to withdraw in 2011. I wanted to get out. I wanted to put the public defenders off. Yeah. So it was this kind of feeling that I'd finally gotten what I wanted. One of the most prominent feelings that I remember, apart from being relieved, is having a disenfranchisement with the practice of law. I mean, I'd wanted to be a lawyer ever since I was in grade school and read a little children's book called She Wants to Be a Lawyer. And then all of a sudden, here I was in my mid to late 40s going, huh, I don't want to practice law anymore. I'm feeling disconnected from that. And I attributed it to the burnout, and I went on a vacation in the, in the summer, um, you know, trying to make up with time with my wife, that kind of thing, do those bucket list trips, hoping that in the fall, when I when I got done escaping the heat, uh, that I would want to return to the practice of law. And that um, that feeling never happened, um, and that's about the time cancer arrived. Yeah, I, I want to do, dig into the cancer because it sounds like you got a lot of growth and a lot of wisdom from there. But first, I want to ask you about that little kid that wanted to be a lawyer. Like what what stood out to you about the law and getting into that practice? 
you know, at that point in time, you know, when you're in first, second grade or what have you, you don't, I, I don't really think I understood the connection, right? It was just this book. It was, um, it wasn't accurate. You know, every, all the lawyers were happy and the judges were happy, which is, isn't real life, <laughs> unfortunately, right? Yeah. But it connected to a child. So it's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be right, real, to right? Fantasy. Yeah. It's not supposed to talk about, you know, drinking and, and some of the problems that, that arise within the legal community, that's what have you. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things that connected to my heart at the point in time was something that I always wanted to do. And, you know, I, I've written about this in my books and what have you, but, um, to, to make a long answer short, I was kind of discouraged from that. I didn't have the grades for that. I should have gone for something easier, what have you. So I spent a long time in my life, not pursuing that dream as fully as I should, because many is that what I call the demon of practicality came in. A lot of people putting that into my world, like you should do this, you should do that. It's easier. You're a yeah. C student. You're not an A student, right? So like the, the I, naysayers, right? Of just yeah. kind of keeping you down. Yeah. But it's never, it, you know, naysayers is true, but it's also still done with a loving intent, right? When, yeah. Because my grandparents, I was raised by my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And they grew up in the depression, the tail end of the depression. So they didn't, you didn't necessarily know where your next meal was going to come from. So when you had a good job, which meant pay, steady pay, and benefits, like check wasn't going to be your paycheck wasn't going to be, and you were going to have health benefits, you didn't quit that job. So that really became uh, kind of handcuffs to me, if you will, because it didn't, you know, that demon of practicality was always with me and chasing a dream like that just didn't seem to make sense. Go work at the grocery store or go, go be a police officer where my other two more. And those were things that kind of interfered with that dream. So I went to law school later in life when I finally decided um, I needed to follow that path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes a ton of sense, right? It sounds like it was coming from a place of concern and security of we want you to be safe. We want you to not fail, you know? Right. It's like just like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, if parents have kids that want to be actors, they're probably going to discourage and say, well, what if the odds are so long, et cetera, et cetera. But what if that's really in their heart? And that's why part of one of the lessons I think I, I really learned from cancer, and I don't want to jump too far ahead in your question, mm -hmm. but um, was, was the idea of following what's in your heart? Because really that's what's going to make you happy. And it's always either, you know, when I diverted myself from the law, I just wasn't happy. When I started pursuing that, I was. So that, that, that gives some context really to the feelings too of, you know, uh, how I felt that day in April when I was going around for a run, realizing that I was disenfranchised to practice law. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's move right into the cancer. What was that diagnosis like? You said it hit pretty much right after you were done with the, with the trial, with the case. Yeah, it, it, it hit at a pretty monumental time. I mean, I was done in April. And like I said, I took the summer off. I had lost a bunch of weight between the two trials. I lost over 80 pounds. Wow. And that motivated me to write my first book on my weight loss because a lot of people were curious about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was doing that and taking these trips. And when late August around, I was we were about ready, my wife and I were about ready to take our last vacation for the summer. And I was going to come back. The, the colleges were in session. It starts to cool down. Business starts to pick up criminal defense lawyers. And as I said earlier, I, I was, I hadn't reconnected to the practice of law at that point in time. I didn't have a passion for it, but my plan was I was going to go back by default. Well, I, nothing else had really struck my fancy as it were. So let's go back to the law. Mm -hmm. 
And that is about the point in time that cancer in my life. I discovered uh, a lymph node flamed under my arm. And, um, you know, the one thing led to another, and that led to the diagnosis of stage three on Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oof. So what was yeah. it to, to get that news? You know, there were so, so many emotions with it, I guess, yeah. looking back, because I knew right away in my heart it was from the stress of the Jody Arias trial. I mean, it had been six years with Miss Arias at that point in time. It had been a good two and a half years or so in the public spotlight and still doing to some at that point in time. So I knew right away it was related to that stress. And it was it was confounding. It was a real moment uh, for me in my life because really it sounds funny to say, and, and people are going to, you know, it's going to sound funny to people as well, but I remember at that point in time being in my late 40s wondering if I was going to take chemotherapy. Not mm-hmm. was I going to take chemotherapy, not what it was going to be like, but if. Because here I was, what I'd wanted to do since I was in grade school no longer ignited passion in me. I was disconnected from it. It was all I ever known. It was really, like a lot of people, my job, my career had become my identity. That's who I was, right? I wasn't just Kurt, a lawyer. I was an attorney. And that, you know, we take on many times take on those identities or who we are, right? And so my very identity was kind of in question. And I began to wonder if the remaining years, the, the life that I would have to fight for in those chemo chairs, worth fighting for did i want to live those yeah that's a really powerful statement we're going to move into our first commercial break when we come back i want to hear a lot more about that about your identity getting wrapped up you know in your work i think it's so common and kind of that slump and how you dug yourself out of it so thanks so much for joining in for this first segment Um, if you're listening stay tuned because i think it's going to go to a really interesting place when we get back In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 
or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Kirk Nurmi, and you just started to share about your cancer diagnosis. And I think something that a lot of our listeners can relate to, which is over-identification with their job, right? With you as an attorney. And when that was stripped away and you got burnt out from that, really hitting like a dark place, it sounds like, you know, hitting a place of emptiness. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it really was a dark place because you think about, you know, if you're going to go into chemotherapy versus when or, or how you're going to deal with it, that sort of thing. Um, that was a dark place. And it was a dark place I was in alone. Because those are the kind of thoughts I just, you know, because we're really kind of talking about suicide by cancer yes. there, you know. My wife knew I had cancer, but I ultimately had to make the choice. And part of what really got me to make the choice to go into that chemotherapy, for the six rounds of chemotherapy, was the idea that um, I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't live my remaining years the way I had my prior years. And that was going to mean a lot of big changes. I had written a book about the case because my client threw me under the bus, making things even worse. I was fighting with the bar and I realized, well, I didn't want to win this fight because I didn't want to run out the clock. So I asked to be disbarred so I could strip myself of that tether because I knew I wasn't going to keep that promise to myself if I had that law license to fall back on. I felt like my calling, what I wanted to do was somewhere else, my heart, my passion, what would make me happy was outside of the law. So I didn't fight for those years, however many they may turn out to be, in order to keep living as I had in the past. And that promise is what motivated me to get into the chemo chair. And I think that's what's motivated a lot of the pursuits I have made since becoming a, a cancer survivor. So I'm really curious about that moment, right? That pivot moment. Um, was it a conversation with somebody? Was it something that you read? Was it a spiritual moment? Um, that moment of choosing life is what I'm hearing, right? Like choosing your future life and choosing to live a different life. Where do you think that came from? What was that like for you? I do think it was uh, it was a spiritual moment. I mean, it was just basically I was you know out for a run. I hadn't gone through any of the chemo yet. I hadn't put my port in yet. Anything else? I was like as I said, making that decision and just going out for a run, which is one of the things I like to do, and it's still cool enough in April uh, sometimes to do that. And um, yeah, it was just connecting to that you know i had to find reasons i wanted to live for myself not for not just to not make my wife a widow not just to do you know find out who wins the super bowl next year or the world series why i wanted to live and once i made that connection and i think that was on a spiritual level that's what motivated me to keep going yeah i, I really like what you're saying about that especially you know making it for yourself because there's so many people, so many people that live for other people, right? Whether it's caregivers or being worried about what people think about them or fear of judgment or any of that type of thing. Yeah. But for me, my spiritual path has been just that. What you're talking about has been overcoming that other focus and really figuring out who I am, right? As I connect in a spiritual way or as I connect to the greater community, but really coming into my center and being in the present moment versus kind of chameleon or trying to be charismatic or persuasive or all these things that I used to do. Um, but in the, in those moments I was losing myself. I'm curious if you relate with that at all. 
I do because we can attach to that identity, right? Whether you're a doctor, lawyer, podcaster, what have you. And one of the things that I learned, I had the great opportunity to work with a couple of great spiritual teachers, Dr. John Stevenson and Kyle Cease. And one of the things that Kyle Cease talks about is that there is a part of you that existed throughout the changes, mm-hmm. meaning there is a part of you before you were a podcaster. Or you even heard a podcast. There's a part of you that's going to exist after whatever other pursuits you do in your life. That is the constant flow. And and ultimately, to me, that's your heart, your soul, your spirit, whatever you want to call it. That part is always there for you to call back to, regardless of these human identities we put on. When you call back to that part, that's when you really are connected to who you are. Mm-hmm. Because every other identity is transitory. Almost every other identity is transitory. Absolutely. Yeah, so I've studied Buddhist practice and they have a very similar idea. The idea of like the witness, right? Of whatever we are is we're the thing that sees everything, right? We're the thing that observes the thoughts and has the experiences. We're not the experiences or thoughts themselves, right? We're the thing that's seeing it. And we're the container that holds it all. So just like you're saying, there is that through line that goes through everything, but everything else is like, it's a process. It's a fluid. It's always in motion. It's, it's a verb, not a noun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you bet. Yeah. It's a sense of doing and, and being, um, but it's not very static. So say, can you say more about your spiritual practice? What, um, is it faith-based? What does it connect to? Is there a daily practice involved in it? How do you keep it alive? Sure. Um, I wouldn't really put a religious denomination on it. I, yeah. you know, I, I started even when I was when I was younger. I started reading Deepak Chopra, connected to him years ago, and then kind of uh, got away from that. And you can imagine also, lawyer like a lot of were trained to be logical, right? So some of the yeah. some of the um, maybe traditional spiritual beliefs don't make a lot of sense. Maybe even some of the some of the more would consider out there police don't make a lot of sense but um to me it became it was an it was an evolution process like i never with all due respect to anyone who does i never bought the idea of god being a, a judge in the sky mm-hmm. it sends people in different directions right um you know maybe maybe my beliefs are more in line with the buddhists or 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 you know i'm, I'm a member of the unity church mm-hmm. uh you know you know they call practical christian uh, but to me, God, source, what have you, is really just love and the orchestrator of what is. And we are all spiritual beings having a human experience. And uh, we're here to learn and evolve from that from that human experience. And that's kind of my spirituality in a nutshell, by the way. It's just, you know, another way of putting it, I guess, is just that love based and, and, and having that experience and seeing the beauty in the universe. Yeah. I think that's, again, simple, but powerful of trying to see the humanness in every interaction that you have, right? Taking people at kind of like their best possible value, um, trying to, you know, practice compassion is what I'm hearing. And yeah, I'm so curious because it seems, and this could be a judgment, so please correct me, it seems so different from the law, right? Which is very black and white and literally is based on judgment, right? I mean, that's what it, that's what it is. Um, trying to find truth, but then, you know, create a punishment that matches that, right? Or an outcome that matches that. 
Yeah, to some extent, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's a spiritual element when we talk about what is justice. Yeah, what defines justice is yeah. is one of is one of the hard parts because, you know, we have this this society, our American society, whatever society we live in, we all live under contracts of, of conduct, right? Kind of a societal contract, and we decide what justice and what fairness is. And the problem always is in that regard is that people view different things. And, and, and otherwise, like the death penalty is a perfect example. I, I function off the imperative that, that death, murder, killing is wrong no matter what, who's doing the act. And a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people believe that in an eye for an eye, that kind of biblical translation of that. So, um, yeah, it becomes hard. But I think, um, you know, as you, you know, the, the, the real issue with that, I think, for a lot of people, especially in the law, is we tend to see people at their worst. Right. Um, we tend to yeah. see people that have either committed crimes or been accused of crimes, or um, they're at their worst in terms of a divorce or a civil settlement or a business. They're at their worst, and that makes it hard, I think, to see beyond the the, the now and the human condition and forget the humanity in the person. Look at the instead of the entity behind it. Yeah, I mean, so it's not about me. So I'm actually a psychotherapist by trade. Okay. And my first job, first real job, I did a couple of internships and things, was in the criminal justice system. And I worked with substance abuse and drug addiction cases, right? So kind of like on that rehab side of people who had mandatory treatment. And it was this dual, you know, double-bladed sword, right? Of on the one hand, I would got a lot of practice seeing the good in people, right? Seeing the person beyond what they were charged with, seeing them at their worst, whether it be, you know, a addiction or a relapse or even a crime under the influence of drugs. Um, but then I also got really burnt out because there was a subset of the population that were trying to manipulate me, threaten me, um, that they were still in that kind of worst state, right? And I remember really being scrambled around being around that suffering and being around that hostility uh, at the same time. And it was, it was hard for me to make sense of it, quite frankly, because I wanted, I came in with like a bleeding open heart. And I think I left a little bit colder, you know, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, that is a hard line to walk, right? I mean, and I think it is about, to me anyway, it's become about condemning conduct, not people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so that's, what I feel like I'm able to do now, but I've got some distance from it, right? I'm not practicing. I talk about it on TV. I talk about cases or on podcasts or what have you, and I have a lot of distance from it. But yeah, it's easy. You know, when I practice capital defense work, you have to study someone from conception to the day they're sentenced, right? And we talk about the, this Parkland shooter, this massacre. You hear about his mother using drugs and prostituting while she was pregnant with him, that sort of thing. I mean, it's his soul was under assault before even he even landed on this planet. Right. So, um, and it's, and it's hard when you see all those things and the product of his mental illness, what have you to rise above that. And that's what makes jobs like the one you had and the one I had, um, so difficult on people. And you don't, I had a friend of mine who was a prosecutor saying, you know, you don't realize how difficult it is in, until you're, until you're out of it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, it's a great topic. I think school shooters is such a great example, right? Where these are kids. And oftentimes when, like you said, when you look, get more context, you see like child abuse, you see neglect, you see mental illness, you see 
bullying, right? Um, all these types of things, you know, toxic internet communities for some of them, yeah. right? Like you see all these factors and yet they pull the trigger, which to me is inexcusable, right? Like they, they, they took a life, they crossed a line. And it's, it's such a hard thing to reconcile of like, there's a hurt human there and there's a killer, right? There's a murderer at the same time. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, and that's what people struggle with. You know, one of the things when I would select a jury in the death penalty, realize how much different it is. If you and I were talking about the death penalty at a coffee shop, it takes a much different tone than it would if you and I, you were sitting in a jury box and I was asking you how you feel about the death penalty and kill, can you kill that guy over there? Right. right? Yeah. It's a lot different. Can you kill that human being? It becomes, it becomes a lot different situation. Yeah, it becomes way more personal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I hear that. Um, so, yeah, so I guess we're, now we're talking about death, right? And <laughs> and cancer is like the beginning of a brush with death, right? And you said, oh, again, those suicidal feelings is a brush with death. So I'm curious, what wisdom did you gain from that? You know, going all the way back to choosing life, and I'm, I'm assuming starting treatment, and, and I hope, you know, you're better now. Um, but what was that journey like for you? Oh, so much. Because, you know, what? one thing that I think was interesting about this, maybe a lot different than some what we might call near-death experiences or, yeah. or people that barely survived, is that I had a six-month-long look at my mortality. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was at five treatments. I had to get the power, the power ports put in and everything else. And it really, it, it really makes that mortality reality. And then you start to decide, okay, how do I want to live? I mean, so many of us are afraid of dying and we do so many things related under the fear of dying, but how do we want to live? And that process was what was evolving in me while I was fighting for that. Not only why did I want to live, but what, what did I want to do? Did I want to live? You know, I didn't want to live an ordinary life. I didn't want to just go back to what I was doing. And you think about, we should all live with that. I mean, I had, you know, how many people do you know that are just running out the clock? Your listeners might know this, right? I had a friend of mine who had one of those retirement clocks. He'd been waiting for years. He hated his job. And six months into his retirement, he died. Yeah. Right. And and so do we want to run out the clock on our lives? And I don't want to run out the clock on my life. I want to do everything I can and enjoy every minute that I can and be grateful for everything I have. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious about your thoughts on this. So again, another step into my story, I had a near-death experience, which was a drug overdose. I overdosed in uh, college and that I had the very similar realization of really having it like thrown in my face of how limited and precious and how fragile my life truly is and how random it could be. Right. And I made the same decision as you is like to choose life, to choose a non-standard life, to try to live to the best of my ability, to try to be the best man I could and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, kind of rolls out from there. So my question for you is, do you think it takes that kind of darkness to get there? No, it just takes a connection to who we really are. Because I think, and and one of the things we'll maybe we'll talk about in the next segment, my book, Defend Your Greatness, I believe that we are born great, born with an idea. And when we are happy, that means we are on our path. So it's really simple. You don't have to have that near-death experience. You just have to connect to your happiness. Yeah. 
Amen to that. I love that. So we will talk about that when we come back from the break. If you're listening and you're enjoying this so far, please like it, share it on social media, um, give us a five-star review on iTunes. We're working on building up that number. And we'll be back with Kirk on the other side of the commercial break talking about how to find the greatness within you. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. In the final segment, we'd like to talk directly to the listeners and Kirk, you were just wrapping up that last segment about defending your greatness, right? Finding the greatness that you believe that everybody is born with and getting on the path. And what I liked about what you said is that you used a feeling, in this case, happiness, as a compass, right? To know if you're on your path or not. Are you feeling happy? Does it feel right? Does it you know, bring joy? Um, can you talk more about how you defend your greatness and what that's like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my what I talked about earlier with the uh, connecting to that that book at grade school, she wants to be a lawyer and following that path and then having others put that demon of practicality in front of me. And uh, there's so many different things that can prevent us from connecting to that. I mean, how many people out there listening to this hate Mondays, right? They're dreading one-seventh of their life because they have to go to a job they don't like, but it becomes impractical to quit. It becomes impractical or it becomes too upsetting, too challenging because their identity will be changed, like who they are, if they have this, you know, I I used to coach lawyers and they say, uh, you know, if I quit practicing law, uh, I'm not gonna be able to, you know, be as prominent anymore. I won't have, you know, egoic things come into play and everything else, I keep thinking, what's more important than being happy, right? Mm -hmm. And what do you want to do with your life? The question I ask, now I'm old, so I remember the 80s. But there's a, a Oingo Boingo, there's a band called Oingo Boingo, posts a song called Who Do You Want to Be Today? And, you know, it's kind of a whimsical song, but it's an awesome metaphysical question because it ties you to the now and you think, who do you want to be today? Mm-hmm. Do you want to be someone who doesn't like their job? 
You want to be someone who's in a relationship that you don't like, but you stay in because you're, you know, you don't want to be alone. All, all these different things and situations we, we feel trapped in by all different kinds of circumstances, right? And if you start asking yourself, who do you want to be today? Then you'd start following that path. You connect to your bliss and the demon of practicality becomes a heck of a lot less powerful because your bliss becomes powerful. It becomes your guide. It becomes your compass. You start following that compass and it can lead you to different things that you wouldn't even consider. I mean, I never would have considered years ago when I made the change and requested to be disbarred. I remember being happy about that when that happened. I didn't know where it was going to lead. I wouldn't have told you that it would lead to court TV commentary, that it would lead to acting, that it would lead to eight, writing eight books and speaking and doing all these different things that I'm doing this with this weight loss show that I'm on now. All these different things because I didn't know that because the logical mind doesn't know that, but the heart knows and you connect to that happiness and source. And to me, that compass of ha happiness is really what source has brought you here to do. I use the word source a lot of people use the word God. It's really what is brought you here to do. So the closer you follow that, the more you align to your spiritual or metaphysical purpose and the happier you're going to be. And then the success will follow as it were. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. And when we talk about this demon of practicality, where my mind keeps paying, it's like living in fear. And there's so many people, like I'm sure you're talking about these high-powered lawyers, these people that you would think are super confident, high status, make a lot of money that are truly living in fear because their reasons are just the ones that you said are, you know, I don't want to disappoint my wife, right? Or I, I don't want to be poor or I don't want to, um, you know, lose my life. Like it's all these fear-based reasons rather than the bliss and the joy-based that kind of keeps people stuck. But let, let me offer this for consideration, for everyone's consideration. Fear is an illusion, mm -hmm. okay? Fear is an illusion because it's a product of your imagination. It's not true. If you think about it, just about everything that you feared in your life, you go back through your history, everything that you feared in your life never happened. All those fears you had, flunking out of college, failing a test, breaking up with a girlfriend, whatever, it never happened. Or it was a good thing. Or if it does happen, so what? So what? I mean, a lot of times it is a, it is a so what? Okay, so I lose my job. Okay, so what? What's going to happen? So I end my relationship. So what? I'll be single for a while. Okay. So that illusion of fear traps us. And if we see it as an illusion, I think it becomes weaker as well. Because it is an imagination of, uh, of something that's going to happen in the future. It may or may not really come to pass. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, the, the human creature is incredible at adapting. And oftentimes, I mean, your story is a great example of that. The move towards healing is by getting rid of something and creating space and then listening. And if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like, you know, choosing to be disbarred, going through the cancer diagnosis, developing spirituality is you both got rid of a big thing and you learned how to listen to yourself, learn how to listen to source learn how to listen to your own heart. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was liberating. I'm not saying it, it's the road as smooth as can be. It's not. Oh, no, it's, it's not. No, it's bumpy, very bumpy, yeah. right? It's like an old, old bumpy brick road. But it's one worth traveling because you're happy doing it. You know, I don't dread Mondays anymore. I don't live the same year over and over again, as Wayne Dyer says. My life is just full of different adventures. And 
That's what makes it fun. It's not about getting up and dragging my butt to work and doing a countdown clock about retirement. Yeah. So it's it's really powerful. You lose some and you do. You make space for more. I mean, just think, think about the simple fact of losing your identity as whatever your job is now and stepping into who you really are. Just think what a, a, a weight loss that could, even if you stay in the same job, if you begin to connect with who you are. I mean, look, we can't, I'm not saying everybody go out, quit your job, let your kids, you know, starve, what have you. What I'm saying is start moving towards those things because you can do little by little. If you're a lawyer who always dreamed about being a ballet dancer, start taking ballet classes because then that's going to start making you happy and you never know how it's going to pay off. Yeah, start investing in yourself, right? And start yeah. following that North Star. Self-care is so often diminished in, in our world, in that capitalistic society. We got to win, we got to do better, we got to what have you. But if we don't care for ourselves, what are we really bringing to the world and what are we really bringing to our purpose, our greatness, the reason why we're here in the first place? Yeah, and I think that's especially true of, you know, high performers where, you know, they're caring and they're investing in their family, usually financially. But they're missing the time with their kids. They're missing intimacy with their wife or, or their family or their partner. They're missing, you know, any kind of spiritual connection or even ethical or moral framework because they're just trying to maximize that income piece, right? They're trying to maximize that security piece. Yeah. And I've, I've worked with so many people, met so many people that are just like you said, living the same day over and over again, where they're just, they're on autopilot. And they yeah. think that they're running fast, but really they're on that hamster wheel. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, you know, my biggest fear when I got through this treatment and everything was, you know, as Wayne Dyer says, dying with music still left inside me. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make sure I sing my song before I check out. Yeah. So, so tell me more about that. Like, how are you singing your song now? What are some ways that you really connect with yourself or connect with source? Oh, my goodness. I uh, Well, in terms of my daily practice, I meditate. Uh, every day, uh, about a half hour, I exercise as part of my self care. Once I uh, I became a, a cancer survivor, my cancer went in remission uh, about a year or so after, or well, six months or so after I uh, underwent treatment, I was considered in remission. And then uh, five years later, I was quote unquote cancer free, which was a big lift for me. Um, I started investing more in my self-care. I started acting because that sounded like fun. Mm-hmm. And that got me hooked with the great people at Radical Body Transformation, which is a Amazon Prime reality show, kind of like Biggest Loser, only not as extreme. And with it, it happened around the time of the pandemic. So the before it came a little late, but uh, started reformulating my body, capturing my health, hopefully um, inspiring people because I know that there's people out there now listening that uh, are dealing with cancer either directly or indirectly or have dealt with cancer. So I want to make sure I'm putting that good after face on it as good as I can. So uh, I've been working on my health in that. And I'm excited for that to come out in January. Um, I do things that, and again, though, I do things that excite me. Like I say, trying to act in that. That's fun. I'm here with you now doing podcasts talking about matters that I would have thought were um, woo-woo crazy stuff, um, you know, years ago. And and I'm doing all kinds of different things, just following that passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and coming more alive every moment. I mean, that's that's the thing, right? Is that by like drip feeding yourself these these moments and these self-care practices, you're coming more alive. You're becoming a more well, well-rounded individual. Yeah, I think so. I'm certainly becoming a happier individual. I feel like my relationship, I mean, I've been married 25 years. I feel like the marriage is, is stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happier 
endeavor, which is really the only criteria that I use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. I want to back you up. Tell me about the okay. radical buy transformation show. Like, are you are you a contestant? Are you a commentator? Like, what's your role on that? What was that? Well, like? I, I am a I am a cast member, I guess. I mean, it wasn't the kind of reality show where they follow you around every day, you know, or where you go off to a camp like Biggest Loser, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's brought about by a really inspirational guy who um, lost is a is a real estate investor lost a whole bunch of weight inspired by his kids did a did a documentary called From Fat Lolly to Six Pack Lolly and then started a company called Radical Body Transformation and ultimately they have this show on Amazon Prime so basically in the modern era it was really great I had a I had a coach they put the workouts in my phone they put the diet in my phone and I just had to show up every day and, and care and love for myself and do the exercises and follow you know it wasn't like one of those things where you got to eat this or that and just follow my macros and you know I've lost uh, about 50 pounds on that nice. and, and reformulated myself uh, you know I've got a few muscles now what have you we filmed the uh, finale up in uh, Toronto in June so um, people will be able to see kind of my before and after and, and what have you. So just became a daily routine of self-care that I just took on like a, a, a job, go to the gym for a couple hours a day. Yeah, that's that's impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. And I want to hear about the discipline piece because there's something that comes with my practice a lot and some of, you know, podcast listeners writing questions and they'll say, you know, there's so much great motivation, inspiration, even education material out there, but it's the discipline that's hard, right? It's the consistency that's hard. How did you find that in yourself? Sure. One of the, one of the things I think is an important teaching for people to, to learn is that willpower, that discipline you're talking about, you talk, you use the word discipline, you're talking about willpower. It's a muscle that gives out like any other. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it gives out. That's why we see people go on diets, you know, or New Year's resolutions that fail out by what, mid-February, whatever the statistic is, right? But there's a difference between this discipline willpower and self-love if you start saying i love myself i'm going to take care of myself that is different than oh i want that piece of chocolate cake but i can't have it because i'm on this diet that's the denial right that's a willpower that's a muscle oh i don't want to go to the gym i love myself if i want to be as healthy as possible gets you to the gym every time the denial like you're trying to do accomplish something doesn't and having that intention to me there's also a big difference between intention and goals if my intention is to become the healthiest version of myself i'm never failing if i have a goal to lose 20 pounds and i've only lost 18 i'm failing and i'm more apt to quit so it's about having those loving intentions towards yourself that'll get you there every day and not feeling like you're denying yourself and you're failing along the way it's a big difference. It might sound very minuscule to people. It's like the difference between having to and get to. I get to go to the gym. I don't have to, right? So those little mindset differences can really, to me, make a big change in your success. Talk about weight loss or any form of growth. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I think it really is that positive framework that's critical. And it's it's shifting what pleasure is, right? Like pleasure seeking is not that extra piece of chocolate cake. The pleasure seeking is going to the gym every day, right? Or being able to run or being able to play with your kids or being able to like climb a mountain you never thought you could climb or do a crazy kayak trip or whatever, right? Like like the pleasure is not indulgence and it's not self-harm. It's those self-love activities that you're talking about. Yeah, there's no doubt about it because it is 
is connecting to your passion for life and what you want to do. You're not really denying yourself anything. You're just living your life and, and having fun. And I have fun going to the gym because I know that I'm caring for myself. And that will allow me to help others, hopefully, as well. Totally. So as we're wrapping up here, what is a final message you'd like to give listeners of this podcast? What would you want them to take away with them? Follow your bliss. Be happy. It's easier than you think it is. And you know how to do it. It's not complex. You know what makes you happy in the long term. Not the piece of cake that you're going to feel guilty about later. But you know what makes you happy in the long run. You know it. And so if you start meditating and allow yourself to connect to it and start following that path, you will find yourself living a happier life. Great. Great. Very well said. So as we're wrapping up here, can let people know where they might find you online? They want to learn yeah. more about you? Uh, they can go to kirknermy.com. That's my website. It has links to my book and my, uh, my coach for radical body transformation. Uh, so people are interested in that and any events that I might have uh, coming up. I do a one-man show. And they can follow me in Nermy Unchained on Twitter and Instagram. So, yes, I'm living an unchained life now. So uh, that's, how, that's how people can find me. I love that. Well, great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Wonderful conversation. I love how we cover all these different topics and it's, it's inspiring really to see what you've done, how you've you know overcome what sounded like a really toxic lifestyle and how you're out there like sharing, you know, the good word and, and helping inspire people. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I felt like we could have gone on in a couple more hours. So it was, oh, yeah. it was a real pleasure. You know, it goes by faster than you think. <laughs> so if you're listening, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet Triumph and Defeat and treat those two imposters the same. 